Uh, we're going to continue looking at the book of Romans, and so I would ask you to turn there to chapter 7. We're actually going to read uh, a couple of verses from chapter 6 that, where he closes out his thoughts. And uh, we've been doing this study for some weeks, and we'll probably continue. I'm hoping to, to continue it to the very end, to chapter 15. Uh, I, I, we won't go into all the greetings and goodbyes and hellos uh, at the end, but just with his teaching. So let's uh, read this. Uh, you have it in your bulletin, or if you want to read it in, in your Bible. We also have Bibles, by the way. There's a cart out there. It's full of Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible at home and you want one, take one of those. They're free. Uh, but you can't take more than one and then try to sell them. <laughs> now, take, take as many as you want. Uh, and... and uh, it's ESV translation, very good. Okay, now let's read this. Hear God's word. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we have died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's very difficult, I've told you, to outline the book of Romans. It's just, it's, it's just hard to do that. Now, most commentators have made attempts. They've done a great job. Uh, I've chosen not to try to outline the book or use anybody's outline, but to rather take a broader look at it from a higher altitude. And what Paul does in the book of Romans, he explains very clearly what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with people, why is the world the way it is, and why are people the way they are. And so he in, in chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, he, he uses in very few words, he describes the condition of humankind, why we're like that, 
and what's wrong with us. It is stunningly brilliant. It's brief, but he goes, he goes to the very heart of our problem that we have torn and shredded the image of God and we have suppressed the truth, human beings. We have suppressed the truth and we have reached out into the world around us and replaced it with lies. We've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator and Paul can't stand it anymore and he breaks out in a doxology. He says, who is blessed forever. These things that humanity has facing them are highly deceptive and they're almost overwhelming when they take control of the human being. Any of you, if you've struggled with addiction, you know it's almost impossible uh, to break. Others, we just have these habitual sins that we just start trying to excuse away or we try to deal with in some different manner, self-medication, whatever it is, self-righteousness, or maybe we just go crazy with sin. We just give in and just go with it. But Paul tells us that this thing that is wrong with us is not something we can fix. We need someone from the outside to come in. And so in chapter 2, he tells the religious people and, that are Jews and the, and the religious people that are Gentiles, he says, look, all that's good. You want to be good? Fine. But you cannot make yourself right with God. It's impossible. You need some other way. You can't do it by behavior. You can't do it by merit. So he says in 2 and 3, the Jews are under sin, the Gentiles are under sin, and then at the end of 3 he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so to make the point, what do we need to do, he reaches back into the Old Testament and he gets Abraham, the father of the faith. And he said, even Abraham was justified by faith before he had ever done anything worthy of righteousness. And so God imputes to him, he gives it to him as a gift, free gift, gives him righteousness, clothes him with righteousness. And then in chapter 5, he reaches even further back and he says, look at Adam. We, we, we also have a relationship with Adam. Adam was the one who sinned and he introduced death and death passed to all people because all people have sinned. We're not responsible for Adam's sin. Only he's responsible. But he did introduce death into the world and death has spread to all of us because we ourselves sin. It's a condition that we cannot, we cannot erase. And so Paul says we have to do something to sin and death and all of that affliction. We've got to do something so powerful, so striking, so out of this world as to break the power of death. We've got to find some way because humans cannot do it. And so he says, death spread because all sin, but all are alive in Christ. Jesus can and does break that. In chapter 6, he reminds us of our union with Jesus through our baptism. Now, in our church, we believe in baptizing our infants 
and our children because they belong to God the moment they're born. They are covenant children. So we apply the mark to them because they deserve to be marked like the circumcision for the Old Testament Jewish people. They would mark their children and tell their children, you belong to God the whole time they're growing up. You're, you're God's people. You're part of God's people. You're God, part of God's people. When they got to a certain age, they went through a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah for the girl. They, they would own their relationship with God and they would begin to, to participate in the church as full covenant members. And that age varied, but now they do it around 15, 13, I think, for most of the Jewish kids. And those of you that were baptized as adults, and some of us, uh, I was baptized as an infant, then I got baptized again because the first one didn't work. I went again. That one didn't work, so I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of doing it again. But we are unified with Jesus. Theologically, biblically, we are united with Him in our baptism. And Christ the King celebrates all. If you come and you're a Roman Catholic, we will accept your baptism. If you come and you're a Baptist, we'll accept it. If you come and you're you know, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, we're going to have to baptize you again. Uh, those, those are outside the, uh, what we consider the historic Christian faith. But we receive all people's baptisms, and a lot of churches don't. And we serve open communion to all the body of Christ because we are united to Jesus. It's His baptism. It's His holy communion, not ours, not the Presbyterians for sure. So that unification with Christ that he's talking about in chapter 6 is profound. He says we are dead. Dead to sin. It's not just kind of knocked in the head like with a two-by-four and sin is staggering around. He puts it to death. We are no longer, he says, we were slaves, but we're not slaves anymore to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. And he comes to the end of chapter 6, and we just read it, but now, here he's going, to, he's going to put on all the pressure on our minds and our hearts to understand this because if you struggle with sin, this is the way out. This and only this. There isn't another answer. There's not another way. You, Christianity will be miserable, a miserable religion if you don't learn this. It will be odious to you. You'll be thinking, how in the world am I supposed to rid my life of sin? I, I hear about sin and sin and sin. I don't know what to do with it. So some people just say, okay, this is not a sin. This particular thing I'm doing is not a sin. It's just got to be okay. What's well, not okay? And it bothers people their whole lives. If you struggle with pride or, or uh, arrogance like I do, I may go to my grave with it, but I am never going to deny that it's a sin or that I have a right to be proud or arrogant. Not for one moment. Even if I'm 99% right about something, 1% is enough before a holy God to condemn me to hell. I can't take that away from my Savior. I can't draw that out and say, it's okay for me to sin. Sin's not okay. And you say, well, what one person's sins, not another person's sins. Oh, yes, it is. The sins are in your Bible. They're easy to see. There's only ten. 
you get your head around ten of anything, right? I mean, there's ten pins in bowling, for goodness sake. All right, never mind. You guys need more coffee, I can tell. Look, it's not that big a deal. There's ten commandments, for goodness sakes. Jesus reduced them to two. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, really, folks, we can do this. This is not something you cannot do. But if you don't know what's underlying it, if you don't know the, the power of the, the river of joy and righteousness and truth that is pounding neath the belief that, below the surface and you're up here, you will get destroyed. Christianity will crush you. So I'm telling you this, if you're a Christian and you're just feeling the weight of condemnation, I can't, I can't break this sin, listen to this sermon. Come and talk to Dawson or myself or one of the elders or ladies' council or whatever. Talk to somebody about it. Somebody that knows what this is. And I promise you can be free. I'm not promising you. It's Jesus that promised that we could be free, not slaves to sin. And Paul is going to burrow down into this, down into the heart of it in this chapter 7. And the next two weeks, we'll look at chapter 7. It's magnificent. His reasoning, Paul's reasoning, is consistent. It's profound. It's compelling. But it is difficult to outline in the kind of an outline that we would go. Because he goes here, then he comes back, and he goes over there, and then he goes back here, and he comes back. But he's going in the same direction. And at the center of everything that he's saying, the orbit that he's going around in, in is Jesus Christ for us, as us, in us, through us. Powerful. The Holy Spirit living in us that he gave us. So let's look real quickly three things. I'm going to just kind of walk through the, the passages with you, but I did feel that I could give you three uh, topics that we're going to look at. The metaphor he's using, the marriage metaphor, the analogy. Then it's meaning. He explains it very clearly, but it is can be a little bit trying to get your head around it, I, I know. And then finally, the marriage, which is a new marriage, a new relationship. Which he, he opens it up and leaves it there for you to think about. And uh, it, it's stunning. You will never plumb the depths. Never. Not in a million years you will never plumb the depths of what this Savior has done for you. He hasn't just made you His friend or His slave or His, his uh, worker bee or whatever you want. He hasn't done any of that. He hasn't just made you His brother or sister, His pal, His friend, your co-pilot. He has come to you and he has said, I will lay down my life for you so you can wear the wedding garments of a virgin bride who is perfect. And all the stain, all the wreckage in your life, my bride, my beloved, I will take so that you can be pure. This is what he says. This is what the Bible is about, folks. You don't hear it much. But here it is. That's your Savior who loves you, adores you, wants to be married to you. Let's look at what he's talking about here. 
look at verse look at verse one through three. The, the marriage metaphor. Those of you that are familiar with the law, he's probably talking about the law of Moses, but some scholars think he's talking about law in general, or maybe even Roman law. But I, I think in most of the scholars I looked at, they say it's the Mosaic law he's referring to because even though there were a lot of Gentiles, they understood the Bible. They actually read the Bible, so uh, the Old Testament Bible. The law, we know the law, it applies to a person while they're living. Then he gives an example. The example is when a woman is married, the law binds that woman to her husband in a covenant relationship. As long as he is alive, you need to understand this, as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. They dissolve, in other words. If the husband is alive and uh, she uh, goes and marries someone else, then she commits adultery. But if the husband is dead... She is free from the law. No adultery when she remarries. Now, you've probably read, I've read a lot of marriage books because Marty and I had a bad marriage and we had to, we had to go through a lot of work uh, to save our marriage and, and we have saved it and uh, now we're okay. We're perfect. <laughs> no, but I will tell you, I've read, I've read an obscene amount of marriage books from good authors. And boy, they really bear down on this scripture. And they say, here's some rules for us about marriage. That is not what Paul is doing. He's giving us an example. There may be some principles behind it. That's fine. But to take this out of context and make it into a rule or law or write a book about it, about these few verses is just taking the Bible out of its context, something we, we do not do. We try with all our heart not to do that. Yeah, you can get principles from it, but it's not meant as a guide for marriage. He even says it. For example, it's an example, it's a metaphor, it's an analogy. And what he's saying is, that we always live in a relationship. Listen carefully, I've said this in the weeks past. We are always in a relationship to something or someone. Every breath that a human being takes puts him into a relationship with everybody else. That's what COVID is all about. Every breath we take, we are sharing on this planet with other people, with animals, with trees. with We are not isolated. We are not an island unto ourselves. We were created to be in community and we are in community. So you think of your husband, your wife, your spouse, your children, your work, your, your church, for goodness sakes. We are all interwoven into a web of relationships. Someone is never just completely autonomous. If you get in a spaceship, if you get in a Starship Enterprise and you go out there alone, you don't take Spock with you, you just go by yourself. You're still in relationship to the ship or to the Klingons, I don't know, whatever it is. You are always in relationship to something or someone and the Bible tells us our first and primary relationship was with God. That was the relationship that was torn uh, to shreds. 
And we are not born tabula rasa. We're not born as a blank slate and then, and then everything around us is just imprinted on us. We already have DNA. A lot of times that DNA defines a lot of things. And we can't use it as an excuse. You know, a kleptomaniac can't go and say, well, you know, I've got DNA that tells me to steal. And oh, well, you can go. Or a sociopath or psychopath that kills people. Well, I'm just made that way. God made me this way, and we blame God. Outrageous. Paul is saying the human race has got to take responsibility for itself. Amen? Yeah. All right. We are always in relationship. So the death of the husband, this is what Paul's getting at, and this may be, may be new to you. It was new to me. The death of the husband brings a kind of death to the wife. You see, in the Old Testament and in the Roman world, the wife had life because her husband gave her life. Not like modern, the modern world, ladies. I know it's hard to get your head around, and it is extremely chauvinistic and paternalistic. That's just the way it is. But Paul is writing to that culture, and they understood. The husband dies, the wife dies too. Her life, her sustenance, she got from her husband. Now, that's not the case anymore, but think about it. The metaphor still holds. The analogy still holds. Paul is saying, when the husband dies, it is such an utter, utter, complete break, death. Are you listening? Death. It is such an utter, there's no other way to break it more than death. He's saying that relationship, that control, that thing with the husband is broken and she's free. And she's free, she's kind of out there free, but he's very careful to explain what kind of death the wife under, uh, the, the husband went through. The metaphors don't match exactly. You just got to kind of think with a little bit of abstraction. But Paul was a rabbi. He was brilliant. He uses a word. Listen to this. At this point, you died is what the text says. You died. But that's not what it says in Greek. It blew my mind. What it says in Greek is, you are become dead. In fact, it says, you were made dead. You were put to death. Once one Greek translator said this, because this death is fellowship with Christ's death, which is by violence. There's another word for death in Greek. It's apathanate, which means you died. You just died. You just hear, you died. That's not the word he uses. He uses the word thanatao. You were put to death. You were crucified. You were taken in every sense. You were pinned to a cross with your husband. Your life, his life. He died. You died with him. The break with sin and death and the law and all this other stuff that was just crushing the human race 
was born not by you, by Him. But you were there. I don't know how it's mysterious. We don't know how the bread and wine represents Christ. We don't know all these things. But folks, listen. We were there. We wouldn't just die passively. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not me, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Do you see how Paul uses this? He's saying, it's not just, oh well, I'll, I'll say goodbye to sin and I'll say hello to Jesus and just add Him to the rest of my yucky life. That isn't Christianity. Christianity is death. You die. And you die so utterly that it makes way. Listen, you're so dead and, and your husband died and you're so free, but he can't just let you float out there because you will not be free for long because there's other things prowling out there wanting your soul. Get will grab on you, will take you away, and it's called sin. So He's got to do something with you after you're set free. You are become dead. Look at verse 4, the meaning. He's going to tell you what He means. So this is the point. You died. You are become dead. You are put to death on the violently. Just like Christ, with Christ, on the cross. He doesn't mention the cross exactly, but that's what he's referring to. To the power of the law when you died with Christ. Now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. And as a result, you can produce. Now there is a production possible of good deeds. Dead to the power, dead to the crushing obligations of the law to be the mediator between you and other people, you and God and all that. Notice, please, that it's not the law nor sin that is put to death. Not completely. But we are dead to them. So, in the metaphor, who dies? The husband dies. But then he switches the metaphor and he says, no, it's you that die. Well, we're the bride. What's going on here? Well, the bride was so attached to the husband that when the husband dies, you died. Get it? Are you tracking? And listen, scholars are way more brilliant than me. There's not very many, but there are scholars. <laughs> you guys are hopeless. All right. Look at verse 5. When we were controlled by the old nature... Sinful desires were at work with us. When we were controlled, we're not controlled now. If you're a believer, you are not under the control of sin. We'll talk about that in a minute. The sinful desires were at work within. The law aroused these evil desires and produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. Under control of the old nature, before you became a Christian, the law... And we're talking about the Ten Commandments and other moral and ethical things that you derive from those ten. All they could elicit from us was evil. Even when we did good, we did it for the wrong reason. The new nature, when you're born again, when you 
come to Jesus and you lay your life down and you say, you know, kill me and make me new. I submit to you, Lord Jesus. That new relation to God is mediated by the Son. You are married to Christ at that moment. You don't get married to Him gradually. I don't know how you got married, but in mine it was like an instant. I now pronounce you man and wife. And at that point, everything changed. I could no longer watch the TV I wanted to watch. The remote control was no longer mine. If I went out somewhere, I had to get her permission. I didn't just tell her. I had to ask her, can I go? And that's part of the problem with marriage. If you ladies would just let us do whatever we want, we'd be fine. (laughs) All right. The new relationship, and we not only have a new relationship with God, folks, we have a new relationship to the law. The law was not put to death. The law is good. And we are still obliged to keep the law. The Ten Commandments are still in effect. Even the Sabbath law is in effect. Although it's been changed a little bit. It's been modified. We say in our church one day in seven because uh, we're not Sabbatarian here at Christ the King. Some of you may be, and that's fine. I have good friends that are Sabbatarian, and if you don't just behave on Sunday, they really get agitated. But we believe that you should take a Sabbath one day in seven. We do it here at Christ the King on Sunday morning. We hope you will join us. All right. Why this, this new relationship with the law? You read in the Psalms where the psalmist says, I love your law. Your law is so great. So Why is he like that? David, this multiple sinner, I mean, he had wives galore. He was, he was a, I mean, he was a warrior in battle. He killed people, he even killed innocent people, Uriah, and then took his wife. Yeah, I mean, he did, he did crazy things. But then he says, but I love your law. I love it. It's what gives me life. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this. And, I, and he's the only one I know that, that has the the mental horsepower to get this type of thing out. It's just, we obey. Once you're born again, once you're married to Jesus and you see that His law is like the, 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 the agreements you make in your home to get along with one another, that His law is given to us so that we can take, we are His spouse and we can look at Him, we adore Him, we love Him, He is without flaw. Marty V has a lot of reasons not to obey me, but we won't talk about those, right? We won't talk about those. This husband has none. He gave everything for you. And so we have a, few, a little set of things. Love God, love your neighbor like yourself, and, he, and that's to please our spouse. Now, if you're born again, no matter where you are in your, in your so-called journey or sanctification, every beat of your heart will tell you, how can I please my husband? Yeah, sin is out there and it's ravaging us sometimes. But we still feel we need to be right with him. I've got to be right with him. What do I do to be right with him? We obey in a new motivation. Love for our husband. And in a new framework. What is that framework? We are accepted completely on the basis of Christ's fulfilling the law 
not our obedience. It's not that obedience doesn't matter. Please, you know, I have been called things and named things. I have a file with letters in it where people have just shredded. They said, you're an antinomian. You don't believe in the law. Let me say it for Get it on YouTube. I'm not an antinomian. We still must keep the law. But it's not the keeping of the law that is the basis of my relationship with Jesus. It's the fact that He kept the law for me. That becomes the basis for my relationship with Jesus. And it doesn't mean that I can just go wild, willy-nilly, I'm going to go sin my head off. If you did that, you don't understand this passage. This is the heartbeat of our faith, my friends. Jesus did this for us. And the new motivation, Keller says, is adoration, worship, love, joy, peace, long-suffering with others, All of that kind of thing is what is driving the ship. Do we mess up? Yes, yes, yes. He's going to talk about that later in the Romans. At this point, he's just saying to you and I, look look at Jesus, fall in love with this man, and every breath you take, keep him in the center of your life, like you would your spouse, your children, the things that are precious to us. What, ask yourself this, what is controlling you? Why obey Him? I have to ask myself this every single day, sometimes, and I've told you this before, sometimes multiple times a day, why am I obeying? What is my reason for doing this? Is it fear? Am I afraid if I don't do it, He will do something to me? Is it merit? Am I trying to get some good favor from him? Is it duty, just raw duty? I owe him, so I'm just going to do it. I owe, I owe, I owe. So, you guys, off to work I go. Okay, I bombed today. (sighs) Obligation, duty, John Piper says that's called a debtor's ethic. You're just in debt to God and you're never going to be able to pay Him so your Christian life's going to be miserable. Are you doing things, are you obeying to prove your worthiness? I've got to let other people know how good I am. They've got to see me cut and dried on Sunday. They've got to see me, you know, a little thinner. I'm going to get that waistband thing and I'm going to put it on. I've got to be thinner. I've got to be better looking. I've got to talk right, be right, do right. You bind heavy burdens, grievous to be borne. You lay them on men's shoulders. But you yourself will not pick up one of them. Woe to you, Pharisee. Sin can deceive you as a Christian. Its only power, my friends, is to deceive you. It cannot control you. It can tell you that uh, pill, that That will help you. That drink, that next drink of alcohol, it will do it for you. That new relationship or that new website you want to go look at or whatever it is, that bigger church that may be a pastor, oh, that big church, I wish they'd hire me. That car, 
You know, car smell only lasts about two weeks, new car smell, right? And we don't even last that long. By week one, we're ready. What did I do? I must be out of my mind. I've got payments for the next seven years. Sin deceives, but it cannot control you. Sin cannot get a hold of you and make you do anything, but it can feel like control. And what we do, and I've told you this repeatedly, if you catch yourself doing it, you've got to stop. Stop it. Did you ever see the Bob Newhart clip where the, he's a psychiatrist and the gal comes in? Yeah, anybody seen that? Go look for it today on YouTube. It is a riot. And that's what we should be doing in church. You should just come in, give your money, and I'll get up and say to you, stop it. Okay, you can go. Leave your money, though. Stop it. It's hilarious. Sin can deceive you, but it cannot control you. Not if you're a Christian. But we can succumb to blame, blame shifting. And it's like this. I can't help it. God made me this way. I have... You know, I have the, the genetic uh, makeup of an alcoholic or I have the genetic makeup of a, a, a rage-infested maniac with anger. You know, that's kind of like me and arrogance and pride and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Whatever your thing is, I don't know. Whatever it is. I can't help it. The devil made me do it. And where do we get that? Genesis 3. The woman you gave me, she made me. Turns to the woman. She says, the serpent, in parentheses, you made. He deceived me. And folks, we've been doing it ever since. Making excuses for our sin. And I don't know. I'm at a place in my life I can't do it anymore. I wish I could. I try. It just doesn't work. It comes out of my mouth and I go, not, not, can't do it. So, what about the marriage? Quickly, let me just describe. I've already talked about it enough. But now we have been released from the law. We died to it. We were put to death to it. Not just die, we were violently put to death. A complete and utter break with it. We've been released from the law. We died to it. And we are no longer captive to its power. You see, the law cannot condemn you and I anymore. The law becomes a means by which you please your beloved. And so when you fail, you remember the circle I draw? I, I've drawn it so many times, I'm great at drawing the circle. It's perfect. That circle says you repent. You believe the gospel. Then you go to new obedience. Then you go to re, re-engaging obedience. But a Pharisee, the Pharisees always skipped that step. The Pharisees and scribes were great repenters and they were terrific at obedience. They would knock your eyes out with their obedience. But when Messiah showed up, he said to them, your problem is you don't believe in me. Believe in me and keep doing all those things. Those things are good. Continue to tithe your little tiny seeds of mint and cumin and all that. Good for you. But you got to come to me first. I am the husband and you are my bride. Then the law is not a, it's not a burden. It becomes a joy. And you start to examine. And when you find all these flaws, and folks, believe me, they're going to be there till you die. 
But instead of blaming others or blaming yourself, my goodness, in a minute, he's going to say there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk after the Spirit and not after the law. He's going to tell you in plain terms, there's no more con- The law cannot condemn you. It condemned him who kept it. That's the Christian faith. The law condemned our Savior because we broke it. My goodness. It's incredible. An incredible faith, an incredible religion, an invitation you cannot believe. Will you trust Him? I pray that you will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. I don't know that we can even go six days without without hearing this over and over again because the pressure on us is great and you know it. You felt that pressure and you bore it. Ours is just deception from a lying serpent whose head was crushed. Oh God and Father, please open our eyes. We want to obey you. We love you. We know that we don't have the power to do it and so we, we are relying on your, your blessed Holy Spirit and I pray now that as we come to the table and we take uh, Holy Communion that you will reinforce this reality as we're invited to sup with you. Amen.